White Sox, White Sox, go, 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 go. Call your sons, call your daughters. Holy cow. You can't put it on the board. Yes. Yes. It's a perfect game. Red Echo, Grand Slam. A White Sox winner and a world championship. Jimenez, he's your hero tonight. Thanks, Cubs. The dynamic duo of Herb Lawrence and Chris Tannehill. Those two are like a tag team, you know. Come with me to Southside of Chicago. Hi, this is Jim Tomey, and the best White Sox talk is on Locked On Sox Podcast with Tanny and Herb. Hello, and welcome back to Locked On Sox. My name is Herb Lawrence. With me, as always, we're in Chris's basement. It's Chris Tannehill. Chris, how you doing? Doing great, and I'm excited today because this is our first guest that we've talked to uh, since we've done the podcast together. You've had... Your share of guests before I jumped on board, but just, you know, it's easy just to conversate with you about the White Sox, and to be honest with you, I feel like we don't need too many guests to to chime in, but that's why the first guest is an important one, because it's a guy that's covered the White Sox for many years, now he covers the Bulls for the Sun-Times, but it's Joe Cowley, and you'll hear our conversation with him in just a bit. Uh, We touched on many things. Mark Burley's Hall of Fame candidacy being the big focal point of conversation. Uh, Joe voted yes for Mark Burley in the Hall of Fame, so you'll hear his reasons why. You know his uh, tumultuous relationship with uh, with teams, with the fellow Hall of Fame voters. So yeah, that's all here from our guy Joe Cowley, and you'll hear this conversation. And this will be part one of part two parts with Joe Cowley. Uh, tomorrow we'll drop a second part, which is more story based and more just talking about the industry and how the White Sox function. You want to get into the blood and guts of the White Sox organization. Uh, Joe Cowley pulls no punches and he tells it like it is, and, and goes over pretty much a detailed. Uh, of the events that you know occurred around the the final days of the Ozzie Guillen regime on the South Side, so it's good stuff, man. We really like talking to Joe. So that is Chris Tannehill. Follow him on Twitter at Chris Tannehill. Me, Herb Lawrence Ecknerwall twenty three on Twitter. The show is at Locked On Socks. And if you want to participate in our mailbag editions, it is Locked On Socks at Gmail dot com. Send them that way. So this is part one of the Joe Colley and you you heard what you heard, man. <laughs> Seriously, part two, I think, is even better. So tune in to when we drop it tomorrow to Locked On Sox. All right, joining us now is a man. He uh, covered the White Sox for many years for the Daily Southtown and the Sun-Times, and now he covers the Bulls for the Sun-Times. His Steelers are 11-0. and 0. It's our friend Joe Colley. Joe, how are you doing, buddy? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well, Joe. Doing well. I mean, the standard is the standard, right? Standard's a damn standard. That's it. I, yeah, as you told Zach Levine earlier this week. Zach, what's up? What up, my man? How you doing? That Steel, you know I'm a Raiders fan. Is that Steelers hat? Come on, man. Standard's the standard. <laughs> I love that so much. But <laughs> uh, we, we uh, had you on here today because you tweeted out your Hall of Fame ballot, and you notably had Mark Burley uh, getting in the Hall of Fame uh, for your vote. What goes into your Hall of Fame vote? What are the factors that you include when you're marking that X by the guy who you're going to uh, hopefully uh, ultimately induct into the Hall of Fame? Well, for, to me, it first starts with what do you see? How, how do you view the Hall of Fame? Okay. Uh, I've had this debate with Gordon Whitmire, Mark Gonzalez. You know, those guys are more seam heads, hold this thing as more of a holy grail. I don't. It's a damn baseball museum. If Scott Podsednik's hat is in it from the World Series home run that he hit, um, it's a baseball museum. If the two best hitters that in my lifetime that I've seen 
and one of the best pitchers in my lifetime are not allowed in it. It's a baseball museum. It's not a hall of fame. So I've always had this debate with baseball writers. They, they, there's a, there's a hardcore group that covets this place as something immortal, some place of hollow ground. I don't see it that way. Um, I think there's politics that have gone into votes. There's uh, writers that can't keep their own house clean, but judge other people and, and, and the way they kept their house away from baseball. Um, <clears throat> there's racists in that, in the hall of fame, there's bigotry in the hall of fame. There's, I mean, so you go right down the line of, okay, how do you view this place? So that's the first thing. Secondly, and, and Mark Potash and I had this discussion in emails yesterday. He's doing a piece on Burley, and he said he doesn't think Burley belongs in the Hall of Fame. And then I've talked to some other guys. I think Scott and Greg already cast his vote um, from the Daily Herald. He was putting Burley in the Hall of Fame. I believe my sports editor, Chris DeLuca, is putting Burley uh, a check mark next to his name. Um, you had to watch this guy to appreciate him. First of all, People are going to examine the wins and say, okay, well, he didn't have the wins. He didn't have the wins. He didn't have the greatest teams behind him. But so is he a, a poor man's Greg Maddox, who was more of a pitcher, uh, didn't have the overpowering stuff from the left side, obviously, and, and didn't have the full mastery of the craft that I'd say Maddox did. But at the same time, you look at the things he did, perfect game, no hitter. And people forget that perfect game, I believe it was against Tampa Bay, Right. That wasn't some crap lineup that he did it against. Mm-mm. At the time, Tampa Bay was a legit offensive team. And for him to do a no-hitter, perfect game. And to me, the other things, you know, the consistency year in and year out, it was never dominant, but it was always consistent. But to me, the other thing, how many guys have a World Series win and then came back and, and have a save the next game? I mean, that's just stuff that people can't appreciate and hasn't been done. So to me, if you have a guy who did things that haven't been done, he might not have been the it guy of his decade or of his time he was pitching, but damn, he did things that, that other pitchers have never done. Now, that, that, and to me, that, that's, that's Hall of Fame worthy. And the other thing, the wins, I think, we're going to see that wins bar slowly drop down with baseball so specialized right now. And I'd say in 10, 15 years, I really like to revisit the guys that are being looked at pitching wise and what their win totals are for that to be some kind of hurdle not to put Burley in. So, um, you know, th- th- those are all the factors that I put in there. But to, to me, the main thing is, oh, and, and let's not forget the gold gloves, too. I didn't like dude didn't feel this position. So um, he checks a lot of boxes for me of what I feel is a guy worthy of the Hall of Fame. And. Then you factor in this dude barely broke class with his pitches. You know, I think his perfect game is the only one to be registered that they know of that not one pitch was over 90. Um, I mean, that that's that's ridiculous. That, that says something about how dominant you are at your craft, at what you do, your wheelhouse of just off-speed, moving, painting corners, uh, pitching to a guy's last swing, keeping guys off balance. I mean, there's something to be said about that. So, um, yeah, you can lock into a no-hitter. It's been done before. But to have a no-hitter and a perfect game, that that says something to me. So, um, 
those were those were all the reasons. And 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 this was a guy that didn't bust his ass to to work out in the off season either. I mean, he was on his property as he used to like to call it, um, hunting and fishing, and you know, being a family guy. And then come spring training, he'd show up and kind of look like he just, you know, rolled off the last stool in a bar and, and, and uh, he'd get in shape in spring training and he'd be ready to go and didn't need a lot of work, didn't need a lot of maintenance, um, was always great with the media. You know, to, the media pretends like that's not a factor, but ask Barry Bonds if it's a factor. Um, you know, he talked to us on game days, which a lot of pitchers don't do. You know, they're superstitious, so they can't talk to the media. Before. He didn't buy into any of that. And the other thing, too, about Burley, he was one of the unsung – uh, sneaky shit stirrers in that clubhouse. He loved <laughs> to call us over and be like, Hey man, ask so-and-so about this. Don't say you heard it from me though. And then he would just sit back and watch. I mean, he just loved that kind of stuff. Um, even as a young guy, he didn't sign his tender, I think in, uh, in spring training one year. Um, and you know, then the organization has to go ahead and sign it themselves. And I think it, it was, you know, cost you like 50000 But just to send a message that, hey, in a couple of years, I'm going to be really good. So at some point, we're going to have to talk money and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, he was just a joy to cover, but but more more impressively, a joy to watch out there. I think, um, and I've been on record to say that, I don't think the voters are going to have Mark Burley in the Hall of Fame. He'll eventually make it no. by the veterans and people of his peers. But... I think his story just by itself allows him to be a Hall of Famer. Just small town, Jefferson. Right. I think Jefferson College in Missouri is a yep. no, nothing college, 38th round pick. And that guy goes from being drafted to pretty much being in the majors, pitching in the minors very, very little, and then ascends to one of the best pitchers of his era. I don't know if he's like a top five of his era, but like – when you're looking at those uh, all-star appearances, the gold gloves, the perfect game, the no-hitter, and then also that I also like to put in the the 27 he did versus the Cleveland Indians where he went versus the minimum there, and I think he gave up two yeah. hits there. The guy with his story from where he came from to where he ended, that is what a Hall of Famer is to me. So I'm you know I'm biased because who doesn't like, love Mark Burley? And you like you said, famously a shitster. And Tanny and I were talking about this. And we might get a little bit more into it later on, but you need those type of guys, right, in the clubhouse for a successful team. A guy that's not just happy, happy to go along with the with whatever uh, the message is. A guy that's in there to stir some shit up, like maybe a Carl Everett, maybe a Mark Burley, maybe AJ Brzezinski. Yeah, and and he was great for that pitching staff. Like you know, John Garland just dug himself, tasted himself, was so serious <laughs> about everything. And Burley would just like rip on him and kind of bring him down to earth. And and, and um, the 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 best. And I can't even talk about some of the interaction because. The climate has changed so much. The interaction between Burley and and Juan Uribe. You talk about a guy, two guys that couldn't be completely different, who just loved each other. And people forget when the White Sox let Uribe walk, Burley actually offered up some of his salary to Kenny Williams to keep him. Mm -hmm. And they had to tell him, you know, this isn't uh, you can't defer money in baseball. It's guaranteed. We can't take money off your salary to pay Juan Uribe. But that's how much he's like, take a million off my salary and give it to Juan. 
um, because I want him here for at least one more year. It didn't happen, but Burley was dead serious. About, I mean, money that he wasn't a big money guy. I mean, if you saw the way he dressed, that, that kind of stuff wasn't flash for him. It, he was proud that he was able to build an awesome workshop for his dad. His dad was a very handsy guy and liked building stuff. And, you know, things like that is, is what excited him. You know, he got a, all the best tools and drills and all that stuff and made a real nice workshop for his dad. So, um, yeah, what his effect in the clubhouse, especially on those – the playoff team and the World Series team, huge. Never shook a catcher off. Never big lead to catcher. He, you put it down, he threw it. Um, that that was the one thing that. And look, a guy that could give it to AJ, but also appreciated AJ and didn't get caught up in in AJ's shenanigans. Whether AJ was on the top of the dugout yelling at somebody or um, you know trying to show up a pitcher if he doesn't doesn't throw the pitch that AJ wants. Um, Burley was perfect for kind of being that uh, anchor for that staff. And, you know, I, I wouldn't even say, I mean, when you think about that staff, I mean, people forget Jose Contreras from the second half of 2000, I think it was the second half of 05, mm-hmm. going into 0, the first half of 06, had the best stuff in the American League. It was unhittable. Um, Garland found something. Um, we had sweaty Freddie Garcia in there and, and, you know, he, he didn't give a damn about the little games, but come big game time, Freddie was, you know, somewhat sober and ready to go. Um, so, you know, Burley on that staff probably didn't night in and night out, didn't have the best stuff, but by far was the most consistent. And to me was the one that you could always count on. You knew what you were going to get from him no matter who the competition was, no matter who the team was. So, um, you know, and it, it's sad because it feels like unless you're a Sox fan, the dominance of that 05 team has slowly just been overlooked each year. Um, I don't recall a team from a pitching standpoint, from a starting pitching standpoint, being that dominant in the last 20 years from start to finish. I mean, I mean, I can't, you know, yeah, yeah. Podsednik had a big hit. Blum had big hits. Canerco had, you know, there were some big moments. Jermaine Dye was outstanding. But that starting staff um, was as dominant a starting staff as I can recall in a playoff to World Series. And Burley was a catalyst in there. So um, that has to be recognized and that has to be appreciated as saying, okay, I mean, you got to give this guy a nod at some point for what he did. And, and, and Herb, like you said, I mean, the story of where he came from um, and how quickly he came through the system. Lefties, to me, if, if a lefty has it, he's going to come quicker than a righty. That's just the way it is. Um, but Burley, um, you know, work, starting off working out of the bullpen and just how dominant he was and, and how he opened up eyes to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that uh, you're going you're gonna to have to eventually move into the starting rotation. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many factors you could break down. So do you look at that as far as a guy, you, you look at their natural ability and their skill set in terms of, there's not many guys that did more with less natural ability than Mark Burley, you know, didn't have overpowering stuff. And you look at, you know, right. some of, some of his contemporaries, you know, like Verlander and guys like that. Like, do you look at that when you're making your vote as like, man, you, or do you think that should be a part of it when people look at it? Like, man, this guy did more with less than anyone else, like in his era. I, I don't think that should, I mean, to me when I'm sitting down and and looking at the list of names, 
I, I don't believe in this first guy guy first time guy has to wait. I don't believe in that. That's all crap. <laughs> um, but when I sit down, I think about each guy and kind of what my when I was covering baseball, what my thought was of covering that guy that day. And I'm not talking about just a White Sox guy. If you're if you're you know if you're in Los Angeles and and it was an Angels player, you know what was it like saying, okay, oh this guy's coming to bat again or this, you know. So you you just to me, I first look at kind of what was the feeling I had about that guy, his talent, and what he was going to bring to the ballpark that day. Um, so that's kind of the first thing I do. You know, I covered baseball for, I think it was, started at the end of 97 and probably went until, when, I, when Ozzy left the Sox, I left the Sox. Um, so, you know, and I did a column for a couple of years, so it was in and out of baseball. Um, so however many years that was, um, that's kind of the first thing I do. Then, then I'll break down the numbers and I'll say, okay, um, what do these guys' numbers look like? Um, I don't know if I – sometimes I'll look and say, okay, I'll compare it to other guys in that era. But I don't know if that's necessarily fair. When You, you know, I, is it fair to compare Colorado guys with other guys? Um, is it fair to um, compare guys that were in pitchers' ballparks compared to guys that were in hitter ballparks for the most of their career? So, you know, I mean, yeah, I look at that. Um, but um, to me it's just kind of what feels like it someone was special and belongs in there. And again, I don't hold it in the high esteem that some people do. It's not that I don't take my vote seriously. I just don't think like, oh, I'm the guardian of this of this hollow ground and and Barry Bonds, how dare you? And and Manny Ramirez, how dare you? Or Sosa, how dare you? You know, I I, I wrote in Pete Rose before. I voted I voted McGuire. I voted Bonds every year. I voted. Um, Clemens every year, Sosa in and out, depending on, on what the rest of the class looks. I rarely do I not vote 10 guys. I usually put 10 guys in there because I think there's so many guys that belong in there. Um, the idea that only one or two make it a year is, is, is stupid. Um, I think the most disappointing one since I've been voting was that I believe Alomar was not a first ballot. Correct. Yeah, absurd. Yeah, they that, like punished him because he spit in somebody's face. Yeah, uh, umpire's that face. was sports writers, again, with dirty houses, dirty basements, <laughs> and dirty attics, judging someone for one act that he did. The fact that they kept him out for a year. Um, and I actually talked I, I talk to – because Sandy and I always had a good relationship. I talked to Sandy that day. And he, at the time, you know, I had an old number for Robbie and he hooked me up with Robbie right away. And we got a nice story out of, I talked to Robbie. Um, he was generally just really hurt and, and say what you want about him. There was, the dude was a witch with the glove, with the bat. I mean, to me, one of the best in forget second base, forget one of the best infielders since I've covered baseball, um, hands down. Um, so that one really irked me and, and showed me, you know, again, the baseball writers were flexing their uh, holier than thou muscles, um, which, you know, I, I just I just could never get into. Even when I covered baseball on a, on a daily basis, um, I could I, I just I don't know, maybe I was just different. Time to step aside for a quick timeout. We'll be back with more from Joe Cowley after this. 
Before we get back into this Joe Cowley interview, you're going to want to check out our guys Locked On MLB. Join Walking Baseball Encyclopedia Sully every day on Locked On MLB for a unique look at the majors both present and past featuring exciting guest interviews, routine check-ins from the Locked On MLB Network's team of local experts like us, and insightful analysis on the day's biggest stories. Locked On MLB is the single best source for daily baseball talk. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. My favorite Mark Burley memory is, I mean, besides all the you know perfect game, no hitter in the World Series games, were the game up in Minnesota, I think it was 2006, where he gives up seven runs, I think only one was earned, and then Ozzy keeps him in the game, and yeah. he eventually comes back and wins that game. What about yeah. you? Were you firstly were you at that game, and secondly, what's your favorite Mark Burley other than the you know big time name uh, starts that he had? Yeah, all, all my favorite Burley moments have nothing to do with him pitching. But um, <laughs> as far as pitching, the perfect game will stand out for me because it was such a uh, – uh, it was an afternoon game. It was such a, a, a good day for for myself and the paper. We had – that same day we had the big uh, Jim Parquet um, expose where he came out in our paper and admitted that he um, had done steroids and, and – so we had that. So I came to the ballpark and there was a, you know, there was a big firestorm behind that. Um, and then when you're a writer, you want, when you have something, you want it to be read, to be seen, but then you want to flip to the next chapter. And it was just a great day to come there. That story does what you want a, a big time story to do. And then you have another story that develops that you never saw coming. And I just remember watching him, um, and even from the beginning, he had a horrible bullpen. I remember he told us after his bullpen session was as probably as bad as it had been all year, which never meant anything for Burley anyway. Um, but right away, you could tell he was just dealing. And you always loved Burley starts, especially on getaway days. You know, Sunday in Kansas City, when you got an hour drive to that airport and you got a 7 o'clock flight, there's nothing like Mark Burley pitching. Um, so you always appreciate it anyway, but that was just the, the art. That was his masterpiece to me. He, um, and then also watching him j- jog out of the bullpen in the world series. was pretty damn cool. You're like, this dude's just fearless. Just what a freaking set of onions on him. Doesn't care that he threw yesterday. Doesn't care. You know, I mean, his was arm he drunk? is drunk. Yeah. Arm. How many, how many beers did he have in him that night, Joe? After or before? Before, before yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, he was he was pretty good because I think those guys were all kind of had a feeling it was all hands on deck because Ozzy warned them all hands on deck. So I don't I, I think he was actually in, in pretty good shape those games. Um, so that that that's that's my favorite that's my favorite uh, Burley the two those two moments to see him run out of the bullpen. And then also that perfect game. And, you know, those are obvious ones, but um, then didn't he make it? He made a crazy play. I think that was on opening yeah. day. Didn't he make that 2010, crazy? 2010, uh, I think, yeah. Against, was it Cleveland? Yeah. Cleveland, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- there's – but to me, the, the great moments I, I shared with Mark Burley were in the clubhouse. Um, the interaction he had with other guys – um, he was good as far as being kind of a sneaky source on stuff and saying, Hey, you know, keep an eye on this or watch this. There were a couple of guys like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was, 
you know, he's when I think of my White Sox time and the guys I really enjoyed being around, he's definitely top five. You know, you talk about guys that have different motivations, and Mark Burley certainly, you know, you know, went to his own beat there. Like, do you think he cares that if he's in the Hall of Fame or not? Like, no. I know when it's when it comes time to get the call, he's probably going to be up in a tree hunting somewhere or doing something right. else. Do you think Deer ultimately? Stand? Yeah. Do you think ultimately yeah, yeah. he he gives a shit about being in the Hall of Fame at whatsoever? I mean, it, I, I think it, he doesn't deem it reality. I think he feels like there's no way it's going to happen. So I, I, I think the people around him would be so happy and make him feel the magnitude of it that he would be emotional. And, and but I don't think he goes to bed going, you know, it's not like Frank Thomas who is like. I mean, that that was a goal early in his career. You do this, this, and this. And he, and Frank, and not, not to blame Frank, you have to remember the era Frank grew up in, the Ricky Hendersons, the Franks, a, a young Bonds, uh, Albert Bell, those guys would grab the box score the next day and see what everyone else did. It was so individualized back then. Um, and, and baseball's, you know, it stripped down as an individual sport anyway. But those guys – we're so caught up in the me, 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 you know, 19, late, late eighties, 1990s, um, that that's what it was about. That's how you got paid. That's how you, and that's how you got in the hall of fame. And so, um, Burley, I don't recall Burley ever worrying about anybody else's stats and what a lefty did, what, what he just wouldn't like that. So I think the people around him, it would mean a ton for, um, and that would lift him into emotion, but I don't think he goes to bed going I, I gotta be a hall of famer I, I think he'll he'll be shocked with how many votes he gets this year and i'm, I'm anxious to see how many votes he gets i know of three so do you think do you think he gets in eventually like like herb said i don't know if the writers will okay. I, I i i can't me figuring out the writers for the hall of fame is <laughs> i don't even try it, it's a it's a strange group it's a strange thought process that everybody goes through and, you know, here's what people have to understand. There's – everything is pretty vague. I, I never thought the writer should be the only vote this thing. I've always been against just us being in the gatekeepers for this. I always thought it should be a third, a third, a third. A third of, um, uh, of a group put together, like a veterans group, a third of the people that are in the Hall of Fame, and then the third of the writers. Um, that's what I always thought it should be because – to me, players, the, the best idea of how a guy felt about a guy's talent was if he had to face it and he had to see it frequently. Um, so to me, they're the best judge of it. A bunch of writers that, you know, a lot of us, you know, played high school baseball and that's where it ended. You're going to judge what a guy does and his moral fiber off the field and so many other things that go into it. Um I just never felt comfortable with that, but you know, that's the system. So I, you know, I fill out my, my, uh, um, ballot every year and I fill out the, uh, the thing you have to do if you're no longer an active writer, you're, you know, if you're an honorary, uh, member of the, of the BBWA and, um, they keep giving my vote and I'll keep voting But, you know, I, I'm not, I, I think people have, um, misunderstood my voting process on a couple fronts. You know, the most recent, the Zion John Morant one, I thought, I, you know, first of all, here, here's what you guys have to understand. A lot of these writers, especially when you're talking about MVP and stuff, are, are kind of sheep. They know that all this stuff is made public now. So what they do is you'll see them in the back of baseball press boxes or in, in NBA arenas, 
kind of get together who you vote for, who you vote mm. for. And not all writers, but you you hear it, you see it. Because they don't want to be the guy that stands out and says, okay, first of all, I don't do that. I don't give a shit who anyone's voting for. So when Rookie of the Year, the, you know, not to go off topic, but when Rookie of the Year came out this year, I look at it, I read it, and, you know, my thing is which rookie to me made the biggest impact. Because you can look at stats and break down stats, and John Morant was a stat monster, but to me it was which rookie made the most impact. And I think, okay, who made the most impact this year and who's the most impactful force out of this class? Then I thought, you had an NBA that put New Orleans in the preseason all over the TV schedule, not knowing Zion wasn't going to get hurt, knew when he came back that they had to put him on the air, and then basically came up with a bubble format and 22 teams. That was just to get Zion in the bubble. I don't care what anybody says. That's impact. And so – I voted for Zion without even thinking twice. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I want to, I'm sure he'll get a small percentage to find out. I was then the only one I was shocked and maybe I'm an idiot in my thought process or the way I see things or think about things. But I was like, Whoa, I'm the only one that said, yeah, Ja had a great year. He's, he's a generational player. He could go down as maybe a top 10 point guard of all time when it's all said and done. But if this Zion dude stays healthy I think we're talking better than Barkley, better than Carl Malone. I think he, and, and that's where I hold him. And, and talking to some people that have seen what he's capable of, um, you know, there's NBA guys that feel that way too, that this guy can be something that we have never seen before. So I didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. I'm like, I'm going with the guy who I think is the biggest impact. And sure enough, I guess I was on the wrong side of history. But <laughs> I got a little uh, vindication when that Christmas Day schedule came out and I see New Orleans on it and I don't see Memphis anywhere on it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you mentioned gatekeepers and, and, and MVP votes and everything like that. I remember 2007. Justin Morneau, you know, was the MVP in the American League, and there yeah. was a, there was a whole kerfuffle. Uh, you go on the Mike and the Mad Dog show and they, uh, show yeah, and they, yeah, they yeah. hammer you about voting Derek Jeter. I think it was six. You voted uh, I think Jermaine, yeah, fifth or sixth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jermaine. Morneau, it didn't change anything. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You made it. You voted Jermaine Die second, and it resulted in this. For the greatness of Jermaine Die, did they play? Did they make the playoffs, or did they collapse in the month of September? They collapsed uh, with probably about. Two and a half weeks left. In the uh, more season. than that, they were in big trouble, and, they, and you voted them second. They won ninety games. Look at and you voted numbers. them. <laughs> I'll talk. I'll make this real slow. I know you guys like to yell because that's part of your radio show, and it makes you feel good. But listen, I'll explain this real slow. So, do people hate do the baseball writers? Do they hate the fact that you still have a vote? Oh, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of guys that haven't covered baseball for, and, and that's the other thing. I, I, you know, I'm not there to see these guys every day. I probably shouldn't have a vote. And I think anyone that's not there covering baseball on a daily basis probably shouldn't have a vote. The problem is you have so few of beat writers that actually still travel, um, that still are hardcore on the road, that you still have to have a mass of, of, of guys that are able to, to you know, put these votes in. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think the whole process is, is, is strange. That um, And the other thing, too, when you get to the media, the NBA side of things, you know, we're voting on a guy that a lot of these guys have incentives. First team, all NBA, second team, all NBA, third team, all NBA. You know, I don't think about that. I don't really care what their contract says. Um, MVPs, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, I still get razzed. People always think I vote Jimmy Butler too high on stuff. I don't. I think Jimmy's impact is, well, 
I was glad to see the finals that Jimmy Butler had because now I think everybody's understanding that this dude is bigger than just his numbers, his will, and his fight, um, and what he brings to a locker room that isn't filled with with softness like the Bulls were at the time and thought Jimmy was mean and Dwayne and Jimmy are mean. They're calling us out publicly. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Um, and then he goes to a place that's even softer in Minnesota where those guys, you talk about the guys that fall in the fetal position when Jimmy Butler walks in the locker room. <laughs> that that locker room was filled with it. Then he finally finds a culture that embraces his abrasiveness, his in-your-face, his this is what we do. We work and we win, and if we don't win, we work harder. And so for him to go to Miami, I thought was the perfect marriage. And, and I think we all saw, you know, I remember the first time in there the, at the beginning of before COVID hit and all that stuff, I went and talked to, to Jimmy after just BSing and all these dudes are waiting for him. Cause they're all going to his house, hero, all the young dudes, bam, they're all going to his pad to watch movies um, and then get a workout in, in the morning. And um, he was the Pied Piper of, of, of that, that team. And, um, you know, again, I see things my way, and I don't know if other writers or other people want to see it that way, or if they feel pressure to. I'd be, I'd be anxious to see how guys would vote more if the stuff wasn't made public. Like, I don't give a shit that it's public. You put, I don't care. I stand behind my vote. I'll make my votes public. But how everyone else, because you don't want to be attacked, you don't want to, you know, you know the mad dog ooh, coming after you and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I'd be anxious to see if votes would be a little more honest and wouldn't be as sheep-like if they uh, everything wasn't made public. And, Joe, to speak to the point you just made, and I saw a tweet you put out, I think it was on Saturday or Friday, about you can't be a fan of the team that you're covering. Like, do you think that's a pervasive thing that's going on right now in the media? There's way too many cheerleaders in the press box. Oh, I, I mean, it's, I've been bitching about since I came to Chicago. I was shocked how many fanboys are covering their team. It's shocking. Um, look, since I've been in Chicago, I've had to do once when I was a columnist, I had to go do the Steelers Jets AFC championship game. Probably the hardest thing I ever had to cover. Cause I, and I don't ever want to cover it. Everyone's like, wouldn't you like to cover the Steelers? No, no. Because first of all, when you're covering a team, it's different. You see how the sausage is made. You see things that you don't want to see. You don't hold things as sacred anymore. There's things I still want pure. You know, growing up and, and all the memories I have of the Steelers and, and how important they were for me growing up, um, you don't want that touched. And so – to have to live in this in Chicago and see how many actual Chicago fans. I remember the uh, – and, look, I understand Derrick Rose was the hometown kid, all that stuff. The loss to the Heat that the, the Bulls um, suffered in that in that playoff series, the first one, um, where LeBron showed Derrick what an MVP really is like. 4-1, <laughs> right? Yeah, 4-1. They won that first game. Mm-hmm. We, we had the parade. And, we were right there. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> Park Gibson. was already filled. Yeah. But – I mean, there were media members <laughs> crying after they lost four to one. I'm not going to say names, <laughs> TV people, um, <laughs> Jim Rose. Um, <laughs> but there's people that were, it's like, I get it. 
you you have a love affair with your team that brings you into this profession. But it has to stop there because if at the end of the day, if you're so worried about keeping this team here in your fandom and your memories, then you're not covering them like they should be covered. Because, I mean, look, if you're a beat writer, half the people you cover like you and half hate you. And if, if they don't, if the people, the team you're dealing with, there's not a half-half split, you're not covering them right. Um, to me, it's probably been a little bit higher in some ways uh, as far as the hate. But, you know, that, that, that comes with the territory. But um, if you're not disliked or willing to be disliked, you're not doing this right. You can't keep everyone happy covering a beat. And if you are, then you're not covering a beat. So that was the point of that. And, yeah, Chicago, look, I've said this from back in 98. I was shocked. I left Cleveland to come here because I thought I was coming to a hardcore media city, your New York's, your Boston's. This place is softer than Cleveland. Mm. And so I was shocked with how many actual um, fanboys are, are, are covering a team. And that's why I was like, like I always told golf. And I think I had this conversation with, um, with Lawrence one time that I could I had to ask golf one time, who are you Cub Sox? Cause I had no idea. And this was years because I always thought he did such a great job of a guy that grew up here, a guy that obviously um, loves his city, loves his teams, but doesn't cover it like that guy. I thought we saw, even as a young guy, I met Jason. I remember Dan Bernstein brought Jason and some other dude, we used to play three at three, three on three in Lincoln Park at some old club that's not even there. I met Jason probably back in, I want to say 2000. He was a young kid. And Bernstein brought him up there because Danny probably wanted to show, hey, I got black friends. <laughs> and so he brought, he brought, yeah, he I'm brought, just a friend in general. <laughs> yeah, just a friend. Hey, look at me. I'm Mr. Diversity. Um, but he brought Jason up there and I met Jason and. Um, just kind of always kept an eye on him from afar because I thought this kid's pretty sharp just talking to him. And so, um, but I always appreciate guys like that, that I I didn't know who the hell they were attached to or loved and stuff like that. So um, it can be done. I just know, you know, I had to cover the NFL for like two and a half months um, and I hated it. That's one thing I just, I just want my, I mean, that's my number one sport is football. Um, but I want that. I don't want to be involved in that because I think when you do that, you see it differently. And if you're not seeing it differently, you're not doing the job correctly. Plus the, the secrecy with the NFL. You know, I remember like in the, the brief time when you were covering the Bears, like, you know, in those Lovey Smith press, con- press conferences, it's just it's exhausting. If you're a beat reporter, oh. it's got to be just the worst thing ever covering football, the way they try to hide everything. You know, I'm sure it's a, the, the dynamics a bit different uh, than it is right. in a baseball clubhouse. And the other thing, too, um, you know, ba- you, covering baseball, you're not going to – there's no sport you're going to get closer to guys than on baseball. You're just not because you have more time. They've changed the rules, but back when I covered baseball, you had probably an hour and a half before games, home games, to talk to guys or get to – you know. On the road, clubhouse would open at 3.30, and a lot of times they don't hit till 5.20. So think about that. Mm-hmm. You're in there, and they're, they're pretty accessible. So you're in there for – hours and hours and hours on the road. Um, and, and you really get to know these guys away from baseball and know what they're about. And so completely different when I had to go do the, do football. And plus that bears beat at the time, 
the beat was probably the worst collection of people on a beat. Uh, the way they, I mean, it was, it was like high school, you know, you had, uh, um, all these clicks and all these wars and you can't talk to this guy. I'm like, I'll talk to whoever the hell I want. I don't care. And Mm -hmm. everyone would break up the transcription and this group would only do this. Oh my God. It was, (laughs) it was, um, it was hilarious just watching guys argue and fight. And, um, um, yeah, it was, it was something else. I was like, God, this is, you know, crazy. Seems like a good place to stop for today. Let's pick it up tomorrow. Part two of the Joe Cowley interview with Locked on White Sox airs on Wednesday. You'll hear about sort of the dismantling of the Azeguian regime on the south side uh, through Joe Cowley's eyes. You'll get some great stories about Juan Uribe. It's all right here on Locked on White Sox. It's good stuff, man. We really like talking to Joe. So that is Chris Tannehill. Follow him on Twitter at Chris Tannehill. Me, Herb Lawrence, Ecknerwall23 on Twitter. The show is at Locked On Socks. And if you want to participate in our mailbag editions, it is LockedOnSocks at gmail.com. Send them that way. So this is part one of the Joe Colley. And you, you heard what you heard, man. <laughs> Seriously, part two, I think, is even better. So tune in to when we drop it tomorrow to Locked On Socks.